Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back A little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power everybody and welcome to the Bubble Hour where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. My name is Jean and I'm a person in successful long-term recovery for alcohol addiction. I can't say it, but I live it. <laughs> With me tonight uh, is the amazing co-host Amanda. Hi Amanda. Hi Jean, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. How are you? Excellent. Excellent. Amanda is, uh, if she sounds like she has no energy, it's because she's been out dancing and having fun all weekend from the sounds of it. Yes, so, I have. Um, <laughs> sober is not boring, is it, Amanda? No, not in, not in the least. I had the, the funnest weekend ever. It was just a blast. Uh, Concert, casino, uh, all kinds of good stuff. So you oh, do have fun good. sober. That's awesome. I also want to give a shout-out to Allie. Ellie is our tweeter girl tonight, so uh, she's listening in and um, providing some of the best bits of our conversation. She'll be, she'll be tweeting. And also I want to give a shout-out to Catherine, who's taking a break tonight. So I want to thank all of you for your service. Our topic tonight is kind of a holiday survival guide. December through January is a really hectic time of year. It's full of stress, expectation, and temptation. So tonight we're going to be discussing some different strategies that you might need to get through the holiday season, depending on what stage of recovery you're at. So we're going to break it down into three different uh, sort of stages of recovery that you might be at as you hit the holidays this year. So first of all, to those of you who are newly sober, feeling very inexperienced and fragile, this is a vulnerable time of year for you. So we're going to talk about how that pertains to the holidays. Uh, Also going to be talking about people who have several months of recovery but are facing the first go-round with the holiday season and may find themselves blindsided by some triggers or cravings that they thought they uh, had under control, but it's always a little different over the holidays. And then we're also going to talk about uh, us old-timers who might be feeling really solidly sober, working a serious program of recovery, but may find ourselves susceptible to the pressures this time of year and maybe need to work on making sure we don't become blasé or complacent about self-care and preparedness over the uh, Christmas holiday season. On the line tonight, we have two very special ladies joining us to talk about their experiences and what they are doing to prepare for the upcoming weeks. 
On the line tonight, we have Josie and Margaret. Hello to both of you. Hi, Jean. Hi, Jean. Hi, thank you for joining us tonight. We're so excited to talk to you. Um, before we get into our topic, I'm going to ask each of you to just take a few minutes and tell us and our listeners a little bit about yourself. So, Josie, I'm going to have you go first. Great. Thank you so much, Jean. Now, the trick for me will be to tell my story fast while talking slow. And since I'm a fast <laughs> talker naturally, I'm going to ask you, Jean, to please cut in if I start speeding up to the point of unrecognizable speech, because believe me, <laughs> it happens. My excitement lets that happen. Anyway, I'm going to start from the centerpiece of alcohol, although you will quickly learn with my story, a substance is a substance is a substance. I did not develop a problem with alcohol until I was in my mid-30s. Up to that point, I would classify my drinking as relatively normal, if such a thing even exists. In any event, I had not given a single thought to alcohol consumption, pro or con, until I was almost 35 years old. Now, having reflected upon why alcohol was in the back seat for so much of my drinking life, I would hypothesize that that was because I had another substance of choice, which was a lifelong problem for me, and that was food. My relationship with food was entirely comparable to an alcoholic's relationship with alcohol. I was ashamed of what I ate. I would eat secretively. And most important, I tried every means imaginable to control my food intake to no avail. Finally, at the age of 34, I elected to go undergo bariatric surgery, which I guess was successful really by any definition I can think of. In a year's time, I lost more than 100 pounds. I suffered no physical after effects, and I've been able to more or less maintain that particular weight loss. Now, at that point in my life, several other things were happening. We were only months into our first single-family home, which was a great distance away from all my family and friends. I was a stay-at-home mom of two small children, and culturally speaking, I felt like I was living on a different planet. The people around me in that neck of the woods were so different from me, and they were just not people to whom I felt like I could relate. Now, my husband, meanwhile, has gone for even longer periods of time since he was still working in the area that we moved from. So I was home with these two small kids most of the time. Now, of course, the icing on the cake of this story, I just had surgically removed the one coping mechanism I used my entire life. So not surprisingly, this is where alcohol enters the picture for me. And I went from not thinking about alcohol at all to drinking daily in a matter of months. The cycle of shame, remorse, forgetting about the shame and remorse, hiding, lying, deceiving, arguing with my husband, all went on for months. And I can still picture it like it was yesterday, waking up at 3 a.m. with my heart pounding and my mind racing, frantically attempting to recall who I might have called or what I might have said, then waking up the next morning and thinking, Eureka, if I just don't drink, I won't ever have to feel that way again, and feeling good about that all day. And then the witching hour, which for me was 4 p.m. It was like a switch was flipped in my head, and all the memories of the physical and the mental consequences of drinking were turned off, and then that anticipation of how pretty that glass of Chardonnay would look in my hands, how delicious it would taste, how wonderful I would feel was turned on. So finally, after much arguing and threatening and discussing and cajoling, I was dragged into a form of recovery. Now, I say a form because I did participate in all the activities recommended. I did a, an outpatient rehab classes and some 12-step meetings, things like that. 
and I was able to put down the drink. But really, at no point was I relating myself to any of those people around me. So life moves on. I did refrain from drinking for a few years, and of course, life did get better. So meanwhile, we moved back to like familiar terrain, and it was the opposite of everything I had just left. I had a social life again. I actually liked my neighbors. And since I genuinely believed that year-long brush, quote-unquote, with alcoholism was just a blip on the screen, I convinced my husband that I could drink again. He agreed, but he only said, we have to keep some rules in place here, things like don't drink and drive, uh, don't drink alone, things like that, things that normal people would do anyway. But anyway, amazingly enough, I managed to follow all those rules. Now, side note, it is also amazing how much alcohol you can consume while following these rules, but anyway... So for several years, I argued I could not be an alcoholic because I never went back to that daily secret of drinking. So surely I'm not an alcoholic, right? Here's what did happen. <clears throat> About a year after resuming drinking, I was experiencing some back problems, and long story incredibly short, I was prescribed prescription narcotics. And thus began what I pray will be the final leg of my, what I call my mind-altering substances tour. And obviously there's so much more to each element of these stories, but time is short. So I will say that with my quote-unquote rule-following alcohol consumption and that newly developed addiction to pain medication, things spiraled once again out of control. I tried and I failed for a solid eight months to get my act together, and during that eight months, things went far, far downhill until I hit my bottom. Now, as bad as that bottom was, I am, almost three years later, supremely grateful for it because it led me to the path I'm on today, the path that has brought a peace and serenity to my life that has been heretofore non-existent, a path that has led me to an untapped passion for blogging, and a path that gave me a circle of worldwide friends, like Eugene, up in Canada, and gave me the opportunity to speak with all of you today. Hopefully that didn't take terribly long, the end. Wow, <laughs> fantastic. Wow, wow. I can't wait to hear more from you. You did very well. You did very Thank well. You. We understood every word. Awesome. Uh, you didn't go into into speed mode, so you're good. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and uh, Margaret, uh, I, I've had the pleasure of meeting Margaret in person, which I don't often get to say on the Bubble Hour because uh, I'm way up in the boonies of Canada here. But you are. <laughs> uh, but Margaret and I got to meet in person and uh, have sort of stayed in touch, and so I knew she'd be a really good person to talk to about the upcoming holidays. So, Margaret, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, my sobriety day is uh, March 23rd, 2014, so I'm just a little over eight months, and this is going to be my first sober Christmas. Um, I'm 52 years old. I'm a mother and a wife of two uh, girls in their, well, they're not young women in their 20s. Um, I'm a professional and have had a career for almost 28 years now. Um, so I would, like uh, Josie, I would uh, classify my drinking as somewhat normal. I experimented a bit in high school, um, sometimes more than a bit. I was a party girl in university. Um, I think that I, I did that to fit in. I'm sort of more naturally an introvert. And while I consider myself to have a great sense of humor, I'm also very serious-minded and goal-oriented and type A, and that certainly um, was softened with alcohol in university, and I could turn off sort of my mind from, from work and party with the best of them, and I w attended a university that was 
um, very much a culture of binge drinking and initiated through binge drinking. And um, we got our badge of honor from, from drinking and being able to get through the next day with a hangover and study for exams and things like that. So that sort of ended when I left university, and I would say, miraculously, I developed into somewhat of a normal drinker um, because I think that I very much wanted to be the good girl that um, got married and uh, worked on a master's degree while I was pregnant with my first child, and it didn't fit into my lifestyle. And then as I got more comfortable sort of with my work and competent with things um, professionally, I, it slid back in, um, but I didn't consider it, this would be in my 30s, I didn't consider it a problem because I was a runner, um, I was doing, getting promoted, um, I had a nice house, and I had from the outside a very um, highly functional life, and most for the most part for, for on the inside as well although I was starting to feel probably by my late 30s that I remember my husband buying our first case of wine and really enjoying having that in the house and really looking forward to a couple glasses of wine at the end of the day to decompress. And um, by my 40s, the 40s were um, sort of my most difficult, I would say, decade in my life in terms of um, I, you know, I lost a parent, I lost a sibling, um, I was raising teenagers with some challenges, and um, I took on it. I was promoted to a job that had a huge level of responsibility, and um, I was—I would say—I was a chronic stress um, sufferer. And my number one go-to uh, was alcohol. That was my number one coping strategy. And while I was still, you know, really on the outside, looked like I had it all together, I knew that little voice inside of me got louder and louder that was telling me that, you know, it doesn't make sense that I could get up early and run with a hangover and go to work and perform and and really uh, feel like I was falling apart and, and uh, couldn't talk about it with anyone. So towards the last year, which was only a year ago at this time, I started to really dial it back and started setting stricter rules for myself um, and discovered that for some days, weeks, I could go three weeks without drinking and then have rules that Monday to Thursday I wouldn't drink or if I did drink, I had read somewhere um, that it was that you could be a problem drinker with um, frequency too much too often was the phrase that really stuck with me. So I tried to pick one. Um, I couldn't seem to manage both. So frequency I could manage, but then when I did drink, I would be having my first glass of wine and already thinking about the second and couldn't get wait, wait to get through the first so that I could really feel the buzz of the second. And that became very tiresome, and I knew, knew that I had a problem, and it, I felt very isolated. And on the day that I, my, my day one, uh, I was home alone on a Sunday, and I spent the whole day researching. And the book that I found was Ann Dossett Johnson's book, uh, Drinking, and her analogy right at the beginning of the book, her foreword, really spoke to me. And I would say that really it captures my entire experience with alcohol. And for those of you that have read it, 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 she refers to the drink as her lover that at the beginning was always there for her, was the arm around her shoulder at a funeral, was the 
uh, the thing that made her confident at a wedding uh, was there for good times. But, but slowly, when she sort of decided she wanted to end it, the, the drink became the stalker. And so when she hadn't intended for him to be there, he would creep up her back stairs at night. And I found it very sort of uh, moving and really spoke to me. And as I've sort of gone through this journey, even now, I still go back to that analogy that it has been a grieving process. It's been a one-way trip in my mind when you decide to break up with someone and you know that it's wrong, but then you can sort of romanticize it at the six-month point when it's when you've ended it and think, oh, maybe it wasn't so bad or he was kind of nice or all those things. It's been very much a relationship that I've had to end, and it's been uh, painful, but one that I'm very resolved to end. So that would be my story. Wow, thank you. That uh, The book you mentioned, uh, Drank by Anne Dowsett Johnson, we actually interviewed her about a year ago. So if, if anyone's interested in that book, it's amazing. Um was life-changing for you, Margaret, obviously. And uh, I was lucky enough to uh, get to speak to her on that, on that interview, and she's really a fantastic writer. So I encourage our listeners to pick up that book and listen to the interview. And uh, and thank you, Margaret, for sharing your story. I have to laugh because as I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking, you know, I thought I was the most amazing alcoholic ever. I thought there could not possibly be anyone else who was as high-functioning and amazing as I was while still drinking way too much. And every time we do this show, I'm like, oh, there's another one. <laughs> yeah. Well, would you look at that? There's another one. So <laughs> we're all over the place. Well, you guys, let's jump into our topic for tonight. So as I was kind of getting ready to to do uh, this show on the holidays, and we're kind of doing a, a sort of a series through um, this month about the holidays, I really started to realize that as I go towards my fourth sober Christmas this year, mm-hmm. I it's different. Every year it's been different because every year I'm a little different. And so I really realized it's not one size fits all necessarily. And so I kind of wanted to break it down and talk about different stages of recovery and how that can apply to the specific pressures that come on us during the, uh, you know, these winter months. So let's start by talking about newly sober and really reaching out to those listeners who are in their first days, weeks, maybe hours of recovery and are wondering uh, how on earth they're going to get through this crazy time of year. Uh, I just wanted to start out by saying that early sobriety is a lot like caring for a newborn baby. It's a time to slow down, a time to nurture and protect, and to be aware of the potential dangers that threaten the vulnerable new life that you hold, your new life as a person in recovery. And one mistake that many people, myself including, make uh, when newly sober is to try and do everything exactly the same way as before except just don't drink. And that type of thinking, uh, I found out the hard way, can put um, those of us when we're newly sober can put uh, us into some very uncomfortable situations and make things unnecessarily difficult. So it's time to rethink everything and honestly decide which events are better off skipped this year, which are okay, and how to plan ahead and manage them well. So before we really get into, like, the details of how to get through Christmas, I guess I just wanted to ask both Margaret and Josie to add in your experience about feeling vulnerable in early sobriety. Margaret, do you remember what you felt like back in the spring? 
Yeah, I do. Um, I think that because I had been thinking about it for so long, I sort of expected the people closest to me to be on the same page and to understand that I was making this huge declaration that should be very, they should have had the backstory on it. And by all appearances, I was um, doing well. So I remember being very hurt when I told a couple of family members, and I, I told them very deliberately. Um, because I was committed and for accountability, and I thought if I say it out, I needed to say it out loud to somebody. And um, I was so hurt by their reaction. I, I was uh, told by one family member that it was an overcorrection and that it was typical of me to overcorrect things. And I was told by another family member, uh, whatever floats your boat. And I was pretty <laughs> devastated by it because I was so vulnerable. And they, I had finally let my guard down to myself and to the people that I thought was were closest to me. And um, so that was the middle of March, and I can't remember where, where Easter fell, but it was somewhere early April or mid-April, and it was going to, and I was four, maybe four weeks in, and um, my husband and I deliberately um, chose to be out of town that weekend, and we didn't make a big deal out of it. We just weren't available for uh, the big family dinner because I knew I couldn't do it. Um, it was, I felt conspicuous. I felt awkward. And um, I was listening to the Bubble Hour then all the time, all the archived uh, blogs and taking all the advice that Jean mentioned just now about babying yourself and taking care of yourself. And this was, this was new to me. That, that kind of thinking was uh, sucky thinking in my tough world of, you know, you just get up with your hangover, pop some Motrin, to have a coffee, um, a Diet Coke later on in the day, and soldier on. And that's how I had operated and felt that I'm quite proud of it. And so to let down my armor uh, was a huge shift for me, and um, it was life-saving, really. But that's uh, what I chose to do for that first Easter, was to isolate with my husband up at our cottage. So... And how, you you know, you make two really great points there. First of all is that people may not react the way you hope they will. They may not be supportive because it really can come as a shock to people because it's new to them. Just as you said, they didn't have all the time thinking about it as you did. Mm-hmm. Did they? How did they respond then when you made that choice to not go? Was it a big deal or has it passed now? Is it just... It wasn't a big deal. I mean, unfortunately, I do come from a family where we are pretty... Um, independent in terms of we don't we were open about not putting command performances on each other you know I, i'm 52 i'm not 29 with a new baby where everybody expects me to come at this point in my life pretty people sort of respect your choices and um you know it just i'm just at a phase of life that it, that's quite nice that way so you knew instinctively that you needed to take a break, and you gave yourself that break, and I think that's great. I did. I really hadn't didn't show up to a family function until Thanksgiving, um, and by then I, I felt uh, very solid, and I had had some um, one-on-one conversations with the f- same family members that I didn't like the reaction the first time I came back to it, and I felt uh, far more supported, and I knew that they had questions a bit, but, I mean, even as recently as today, um, I had a family member say, why can't you just moderate? And, you know, I, I thought that we had had a fairly in-depth conversation 
where um, I think that this person is feeling a sense of loss. Like, why can't we just sit down and have a bottle of wine and it just be like old times? I think that's really mm-hmm. that that person is grieving that aspect of our relationship, and, and I understand that. But um, it's amazing the difference that, you know, six, six months can make in terms of you feeling like you're somewhat on solid ground, that you can have that conversation without feeling so vulnerable as you do in the early days. So you really played it forward from the from the early uh, vulnerable time and a big holiday in which you took yourself sort of out of the picture and gave yourself permission not to be there, but waited down the road when you had just a little bit more perspective and comfort and and um, just time under your belt. Yeah, being and I around also, family was completely different. Yeah, and I really felt that the family needed to see that I meant it. Uh, mm-hmm that, you know, I think that there's some credibility that you get where they, oh, well, you know, she's sticking with it. Because I have, I've done, you know, I've done programs where I've been on cleanses and it wasn't unlike me to give up alcohol for a month and, oh, Margaret's on a cleanse, that kind of thing. So I think they kind of thought, okay, they were waiting me out. And I think they know that I mean it. So it's easier. That's really helpful, really helpful. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Sophie, how about you? Can you tell us? Go ahead, Amanda. I just jump in with one thing. I was going to say one yeah. thing that was really helpful to me to learn, um, you know, and for you, Margaret, and I think you already have learned this, is just, um, but for our listeners, that, you know, there's a lot of people that it's really, it's, it's you know, the family members, friends, whatever it is, it's really more when they say those things to you, it's more their issue than it is your yours. Like, and, and that's, that's, it's really hard because they want you to drink with them and, and, mm-hmm. You know, that's it's actually if you think about it, it's a really selfish thing on their part. They're you know, they don't understand and sometimes it's sometimes it's because they have a problem, sometimes they it's because they don't and so they don't have any clue of what it's like to um have an addiction. And, you know, it's and I I was that person. I actually did it to Ellie. Ellie quit drinking three years before me. <laughs> yeah. And I remember going to lunch and I'm like, You don't mind if I drink wine, do you? And of course she was like, No, 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 not at all because that's what we used to do. And I right. had no idea how awful I was being to her by doing that. So, you know, it's really um um the, one of my favorite sayings is, you know, what other people think of us is none of our business. And it took me a long time to understand that, um, but then, but it, it it helps me to just let things go when I when I get those type of comments. It's like, okay, well, this person just doesn't understand, and that's okay. Um, I don't have to get angry about it. I just, you know, I might have to um, set up some boundaries with that person, which you clearly did, which is great. So this is Margaret. That. That, thanks, Amanda. I definitely did. I do find it more challenging the closer I am to that person. My expectation is higher that they would they would know me or that I've communicated clearly. But I, I you make such a good point that it it is their um, their issue and not mine. Yeah, that the word expectation. You know, we always often say like an expectation is a resentment waiting to happen. And mm-hmm. that's something so important to grasp onto in those early days of recovery, and especially if you're on your way home for a big family gathering, yeah. is to know that even if um, you might be expecting them to support you and not get the support you want, but you might also be expecting them to be, you know, the typical jerks that they always are, and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to just not, maybe don't expect anything, but be willing to, to accept what you get and maybe forgive if it isn't Mm -hmm. the greatest thing ever, right? Mm -hmm. 
Um, Josie, how about you? What do you remember about the vulnerability of early recovery? Okay, first, before I get into that, I am in awe of Margaret's intuitive thinking. I, it took me a lot longer than eight months of sobriety to get where she's at. So that hats off to you. And also, Amanda, that is one of my main recovery mantras is what other people think of me. I have to say it sometimes many times a day, particularly this time of year. (laughs) But anyway, um, feeling vulnerable. So I can give examples of that where things went wrong, and I can give them where things went better. So I mentioned earlier that I had that eight months of trying and failing to stay sober. During that time, my mantra was nobody has to know anything. And nothing has to change. Pretty similar to what you mentioned, Jean. So if there mm-hmm. was a family function, I was insistent. Of course I was going. It was my, I am obligated to do so, of course, like I'm the queen of something. And what's the big deal anyway? I just won't drink. So as you can imagine, this strategy was a recipe for disaster, particularly when I attended family events. I come from a large, close-knit Irish Catholic family. In other words, a bunch of drinkers. So I would go to one of these events. Even if I managed to stay sober, I'd be entirely resentful. Why the heck are they allowed to drink, but I'm not? Look at that one. He's worse than I am. Sooner or later, those resentments would catch up with me, and I'd wind up relapsing. So now fast forward to my current path of recovery. I think I was about three months sober before I would even consider a function that served alcohol at all. And that event happened to be a Sunday, and it was a daytime thing, so I thought, okay, so people had to work the next day. I knew that of all the functions, it would definitely be a lighter drinking occasion. Um, I mean, there is literally no family occasion in my family that, I mean, you have a breakfast and we're having mimosas. So there's, it, there's always going to be alcohol, but this one felt like the safest bet. So even, so I decided to attend, but I still made plans. So the first thing I did was I went late. I actually sneaked out. There was a local 12-step meeting very close to the house. I, I sneaked out in the middle of it and, and, and caught a little bit of one. Um, and then we left, my, my immediate family, my two kids and my husband and I left early and had our own relaxing alcohol-free dinner. And it was, it was okay, but the, but the point is, is, one, I prepared for it, and also, most important, I should say this part, I talked about how I was feeling. I talked about it beforehand, hey, I've got this coming up, so there's accountability, and I talked about it after, and I talked about it with people who understood, uh, like-minded people, not the people that are going to say we're overcorrecting, which I'm going to still be aggravated about that one, Margaret. <laughs> so they're, they're, my, they're my two experiences. <laughs> well, that, that is really good, that, because I think that speaks to something, is that choose what you go to. If your gut is telling you you shouldn't go to something, then it's okay to give yourself permission not to go. It really is. We sort of feel like, I have to go. It's Christmas. I have mm-hmm. to go. It's you know Thanksgiving. I have to. We always do it this way. But what you've always done got you to where you are right now, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what we always did got us to where we were drinking too much. So things have to change, and that's okay, right? The other, the other side of it, though, we, you know, we talk about giving yourself permission not to go to things, or Josie, as you said, um, going selective, maybe picking the one thing that's sort of the less, um, least threatening sort of, of all of them or the least dangerous. And what about when there's something really fun, really special you do want to go to? Even though you are in early recovery, that doesn't mean that you have to lock yourself away and not have any fun. Um, I think it's it's... It's a time where it's easy to over-isolate. 
uh, in order to protect yourself. And then, you know, then you get lonely. And, and lonely is a trigger when we talk about halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired as being the four big triggers. Isolating can lead to loneliness. So we have to watch that too. So I guess my question for all of you is what are some things that you've done to be proactive and protect yourself when you did go to uh, functions or events in early sobriety um, that would be useful for someone, you know, now facing the holidays. Amanda, do you want to take that one? Um, yeah, a couple things. I mean, I I did stay home my first Thanksgiving. I was about four months sober, and I, I had gone through a really hard time. Uh, my boyfriend had broken up with me the weekend before, and I was just a mess, and I I was already thinking it was too early in my sobriety but then you know add on um an emotional time in my life i i did stay home and i did have some a little bit of pressure from my family that was kind of behind my back um but my father fortunately is in recovery and he stood up for me and said just let her do what she needs to do and leave her alone (laughs) Um, so that was helpful, you know, having someone on my side, you know, having someone who understood what I was going through. Um, but then I did go to Christmas, and that I also come from an Irish Catholic family, and um, because we've had so many situations in, in the family, it, it has toned down quite a bit from what it was when I was growing up, but it's still, typically, there would be a lot of drinking there, and um, there wasn't. And so I did um, it kind of what um, uh, Jos- Josie had suggested. I went a little bit late. I went with my my dad, um, so I was I didn't have a license. So I had to I had to be I should add that I had to be really really selective about what I did because I didn't always have an escape route. But I had told my dad, you know, he knew if I wanted to go, we were just leaving, no questions. Um, and I I had told my family, and they they weren't that supportive either, Margaret. I I got <laughs> I actually had a conversation at the um, with my grandfather, who was the nicest man in the world, but he just really didn't get it. And we had other family members that had been in um, in and out of recovery or in and out of trouble, and they had painted a different picture of what you know, stopping drinking looked like. So I actually had this kind of this debate with my grandfather over <laughs> Christmas about, you know, that, no, I really, it really is a good thing to stop drinking and it's it's not a, a big deal, but, uh, or not, it's not, um, it is an important thing that I need to do and something that can be done and, no, these excuses, um, you know, are are not, I, I don't use these things as excuses. I I. I guess I, I can't describe this conversation without going into this whole rant, but it was this kind of really crazy conversation because I had, you know, I have someone in my family who um, has attempted recovery and is just not doing it. So it was, it was, it put a weird spin on things. But I did. The rest of my family knew it was kind of funny. My cousins were sneaking outside having beers, and I, and I knew exactly what they were doing. So it was mm-hmm. a little bit like, uh, okay. Um, I, but I, I did appreciate the fact that, you know, no one was sitting there drinking in my face. You know, they knew, everyone in my family knew in advance that I had stopped drinking. So I guess that's one thing that I did. But not everyone's comfortable doing that. I mean, you've heard, anyone who's heard the show, I, I just told the world that I don't drink and, and 
and that's all there was to it. But I know, you know, some people aren't comfortable doing that. And it is, it is challenging even when you do that, to Margaret's point. I had people, I've had many, many people try to convince me that, oh, I can just have one, um, and they just don't understand. So, you know, I just had to stick with my guns. But I guess it would be, I told people in advance I had a plan to leave if I was uncomfortable at any point, and I did go late, and I and I did and I didn't stay long, but I you know I made my appearance and and I and I left, and I actually had a good I had a nice time. And so, that you know I think those are like the perfect strategies to go in with, you know, have especially having an escape plan. I think that's probably the most important thing. I mean, have your keys if 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 you gave other people a ride. Sometimes someone in my life said to me, oh, great, you've quit drinking. Excellent. Now we always have a designated driver. And I thought, oh, great. Is that what Mm -hmm. this is going to be for me, sitting around watching you guys drink too much, and then I have to sit there and wait for you to want to go home? No, thanks. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So that expectation can be put on us, and especially if you're the people-pleasing type, which a lot of us are, um, you know, you might feel like you have to play that role and I was very clear from the get-go you know what I cannot do that if I need to go I need to go right now I think in fact I think I learned that on the bubble hour from Ellie was that when it's time to go it's time to go you don't owe anyone any apologies and so I would if someone said can you drive I would say you know I can but you might have to take a taxi home because if I need to go I'm going so um, that's a really good plan. And it's kind of cool, Amanda, that you had your dad was kind of your wingman, like looking out mm-hmm. for you and giving you good advice. Um, yeah, Josie and Margaret, did you go to any um, events in early sobriety that you sort of had to make a plan for, or that you learned any tough lessons as you as you went to them? Uh, this is Margaret. I um, I went to a my first sober wedding in early July. And it was a family wedding, and I desperately I wanted to go, and I wanted it to be successful, and it, it was wonderful. And I didn't. I found out something very inadvertently um, that ended up being the best proactive strategy that I've used um, for any event that I have to go to, and it, it came out of my vanity, really. Um, I do hot yoga, and I do it often on the day of an event because it makes my skin look better. People say, oh, you're glowing. And so I had done this a few hours before the wedding, but the um, huge benefit from it is it's incredibly calming. It just relaxes your whole body. And I walked into that wedding like I was floating. And instead of it, um, you know, you get jitter. I usually get jittery when I arrive somewhere. That's when I would go to the bar. Um, I felt uh, as serene as could be. And I now make it a point to do that kind of exercise or some kind of exercise so before I go to a social event just to take the edge off of my nerves, really. Ah, so that's a good replacement that's therapy, great. really. Positive it is, and, it, it, you know, and it, if I'm not going in frazzled, I mean, it doesn't, it's not always conducive. I happen to be on a Saturday in the summer, so I had time to do that. I was at a conference at the end of the summer that for work that I did not want to go to. It's a two-day conference tons of drinking um just and i didn't i didn't have the luxury of that i was in meetings all day and that break from meetings you have about an hour and that's where people usually get several drinks under their belt before they go for dinner 
And um, that was very agitating. And I, the person I was rooming with is a colleague that I'm very close to and have known her for decades. And, and I, she, she and I actually had a very similar drinking style. And she was very sympathetic. And I told her when, the, when that last speech is done, and that's when the, the really big drinking gets happening, I said, I know I have my eye in the elevator. And I said, I'm out of here. And she said, I'm right behind you. And, and we went back to our room and left, you know, 400 people behind us and sat in our room and she drank a glass of wine and I drank a bottle of water and we chatted and it was fine. But being in that intense sort of trapped environment for 48 hours was very challenging and I really did Mm -hmm. just have to get myself out of there and away from that whole vibe. But it was (laughs) really great in the morning. At breakfast, people, we were really slow moving and I felt fantastic. So that was a nice reinforcement. <laughs> it's always the morning after where the rewards the really come after to. Now. <laughs> we spend this is Jean, we spend every New Year's uh, on a on a family ski trip. And I have to tell you, New Year's Day when I'm the little turkey <laughs> ski bunny and everybody else is looking like death warmed over. <laughs> I know I'm pretty glad. Nice, but <laughs> Well, um, you know, there's a lot of busyness and hustle and bustle around the holidays. Like one thing, when I quit drinking, I, I all of a sudden I became like the midnight shopper. Like 10 o'clock at night, I'd be like, I'm going to Walmart because I still had the energy and I it was such a treat to, you know, be sober in the evenings and be able to drive. Uh, I used to find every reason not to have to do any errands at night because I, you know, then I couldn't start having wine until I was done everything. So it was such a treat to just have all these huge blocks of time where I could get in my car and go. But at this time of year, it's go, go, go all the time. Lots of shopping, lots of planning, lots of, you know, doing extra things. And so it it can be a time where there's lots to be done, but it also can feel really daunting on the other hand because sometimes in early recovery we sort of feel like, you know, we're very raw, and sometimes we want to get out and do things, but then we get in a crowd and feel overwhelmed by it. So, Josie, I'm just wondering if you recall any holidays incidents in the past of feeling overwhelmed by all the to-dos and the busyness and, and how you handled it. Oh, absolutely. You know, I think that the first holiday sober, this season particularly, is like a gigantic ball of stress. Like everything I did, putting up decorations, shopping, baking cookies, it all reminded me of how much fun, quote unquote, it was when I did these things, you know, while drinking or, or chemically altered in any way. So each thing that I'm doing sober, which may be stressful or even may not be now becomes this monumental task and i'm thinking about drinking so i i was kind of lucky i mean my first christmas kind of like margaret really like we have we both had a few months in so it was probably a little bit better so let me first talk about the first couple months of, of sobriety i my mantra was i have one job to do and that job for me was broken down into four parts every day I had this was my to-do list. One, I started each day with a prayer asking for help. 
in remaining sober. Two, I went to I went to a twelve step meeting every day. Three, I communicated with another person in recovery, someone who understood what I was going through every day, because I'm the type that can sort of isolate. And hopefully those three things would help me do number four, stay sober. So that was it. So if I had housework that was piling up, it did not matter. If I was impatient with my kids, I forgave myself and moved on. If relatives, this was my favorite one, if relatives called with requests, I didn't care because I was not on my to-do list. So in the beginning, there were days where, I kid you not, that was really all I did. And giving myself that permission to focus on sobriety gave me the success in sobriety. So by Christmas of that first year, I really did have almost a year sober, but still I took the advice very seriously. So I actually chose not to attend my family function because that is a, a heavy drinking event in my family. So now prior to sobriety, when it was suggested that I avoid functions with alcohol, I was indignant about it. You don't understand my situation. I'm a mother. I'm in a close-knit family. They expect so much of me. And that particular holiday, I was every Christmas, I'm in charge of a 10-pound, really expensive beef tenderloin that, you know, it costs a lot. It needs tons of attention while it's cooking. I, I make two fancy sauces to go with it. So if ever there's an excuse that I needed, it was this, right? Like, I'm, I'm cooking the centerpiece of the meal. I've got to be there, right? So here's what I actually did. I took the afternoon in my own home, prepped everything I could, wrapped it up, gave it to my husband. He took the kids. He watched the oven for me for the for the half hour it took, and everybody was happy. You know, was I missed? Probably, like, maybe for two minutes, you know, right? Like, there's 35 people there. Like, the stuff I'm telling myself is, is nonsense. I, you know, life actually moves on with or without me at a holiday party. And guess what? I'm making that tenderloin again this year. I made it last year, you know, and I'm doubting anyone's thinking about that first year that I missed it. And, you know, it kept me sober. So that's how I dealt well, with it. <clears throat> so give yourself permission to just take a few things off the list. It's exactly. okay. Nobody's going to die. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, listen, you guys, we're, I'm watching the clock here. You guys are so interesting. This could easily be a three-hour show. <laughs> but let's, let's – um, move it forward a little bit. Let's talk about um, the, that sort of time in, for some people, the holidays are hitting. And Margaret, this is you, the first holiday, even though you've got some sobriety under your belt, um, this is the first to go around with the Christmas season. So it can kind of throw us for a loop because, you know, these old habits, we think we have them licked, and yet there's sort of these rituals and traditions and things that just sort of come up once a year, and we haven't you haven't had to deal with them yet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we throw in the shorter days, the darker days, the cold of winter, at least for those of us up in, in the uh, northern regions, and uh, maybe even something like seasonal affective disorder where the you know, reduced daylight is having an effect on you, you know, it can be a surprisingly challenged time just when it seems like you're hitting your stride. So, Margaret, can you share a little bit about your experiences these past few weeks, just with the change in the season? I know that that kind of hit you hard, didn't it? It did. Well, it blindsided me. Um, I felt that I, um, I, I don't think that I'd become complacent or smug in any way whatsoever. I still think about drinking every day, but I really hadn't experienced cravings in a long time and felt I was more sort of Drinking as a concept is what I was thinking about rather than actually drinking. And um, I just had a really sort of bad couple of weeks that I've come out of. Um, It started with cooking um, 
over the summer, our cooking is pretty simple. It's a, my husband would barbecue something and I would make a salad and it would be quick and, you know, I'm very vulnerable when I'm hungry for cravings, so I eat early and that's that. And um, I got into some cooking last Sunday and I made a pot roast and I decided I would add some wine to it and I thought I would be repulsed by the smell of it and I wasn't at all. I thought it smelled great, and um, I put the cap back on it, and I didn't drink any of it, but I sort of thought, wow, there it is in the cupboard, and there's only a third of it out is missing. And I thought, you know, it just I, I sort of had this longing, and it was that romanticizing of what it was like to have a glass of wine going um, while I was cooking and then, you know, sit by the fire with another glass of wine and a book and, Sunday dinner, that kind of whole notion of, of sort of maybe the good times when that worked for me. But, you know, I played the, the tape forward and thought, well, yes, and then I would still be drinking at 9 o'clock at night from 3 o'clock in the afternoon if I had that glass of wine with uh, the meal so or with the cooking. So I, I was surprised by it, and um, it's been dark very early here. So when I drive home, it's cold, I'm hungry, um, I walk through the door and I realize it's a whole new level of associations where I definitely like to cocoon at this time of year and draw the blinds and throw on the fire and some candles. And that is when I would love to have a glass of wine, put up my feet, my feet up and, you know, ruminate about the day. And I had this, I felt like there was this hole. I felt, you know, the, when it's light outside, I was more apt to, be outside, put my face in the sun, go out in the car, do something, but everything uh, sort of seemed to stop for me. So I was surprised by it, and um, I did reach out a bit, and it was the first time I, I felt I needed to do that in a long time and got a, a huge level of support very quickly, and uh, it humbled me and made me realize that stalker is still out there, and um, I... It, you know, put me back into rechecking everything and making sure I had everything in place that I needed to to be successful. You, you mentioned, um, you know, cooking with wine, and that's something that I, I just want to take us down that path for a little bit, Margaret, because, you know, you found that that was a trigger for you. And a lot of times I see in the online community people debate about whether or not it's okay for alcoholics to uh, eat food that has... Um, alcohol in it or to cook with wine and and it's something that um you know is definitely a very serious topic and something to really consider um uh, i my husband is a real foodie and and you know definitely there's sauces and stuff that um you know the recipes that he has where if he's cooking it he'll add wine to it and and all of the wine cooks out and I feel okay eating it, but that's me. That's my choice. But when I make it, I do not put the wine in because for me, handling the alcohol to put it in uh, the sauce is, I just feel like I don't want to do that to myself. Mm -hmm. You know, like for me, I say that like sometimes I feel like it's sort of like, like that old boyfriend that you might still be attracted to, like you know you're not going to do anything, but would you stand naked in a closet with him? No, that's just not where you should be. Right? <laughs> and you know, can I, I can I add something here? I'm so sorry. Sure, yes. This this is Josie. I 
it's sort of related in terms of I have not done it yet either. Um, I, I've had, I'm sure I've had sauces cooked with alcohol, but I personally haven't handled it. But this past summer, I um, somebody asked me to hold their beer, and they, they weren't even thinking, and it really wasn't. But it felt like it was in my hand for three days. <laughs> and uh, seriously, my mind went down the road. I, ser- I looked at it and went, boy, this is weird. I wonder if anyone else thinks this is weird. I wonder, and then I'm like, isn't it weird that I'm holding something that I can never drink again? And as soon as I had that thought, I went, oh, my God, this is why you don't touch alcohol. So mm-hmm. anyway, I, like, I'm with you, Jean, basically. Let's, let's not even go there. <clears throat> like, yeah. This is Amanda, can I jump in, too, with a little anecdote yeah. on this? <laughs> yeah. I had yeah. a situation we have desserts delivered. We have get gifts from um, from people all uh, all through Christmas. It's ridiculous. And they, they had um, this huge thing of pastries. And I got over there late, and there was only two things left. And one was chocolate, which I don't like. I'm weird, I know. Um, and the other um, the other thing was tiramisu. And I was like, oh, oh, that looks good. So I had a little piece, and I was standing there, fortunately, with a friend who was sober. And I and I'm taking a bite, and I, I I took a bite, and I'm putting it in my mouth, and I'm like, wait a minute, tiramisu. And sure enough, I put it in my mouth, and tiramisu depend depending on how it's made. Some of it is soaked in alcohol, not mm-hmm. cooked. They make the cake, mm-hmm. and then they put the alcohol in it, and that that was the case with this one. And I was like, oh my god, and it was the teeniest bite and I just handed it to him I'm like take this I'm like oh my god I can't I can't go near this thing but it was funny um my I didn't want to drink or anything but my I could not stop thinking about alcohol all day because a tiny drop of it touched my tongue and my brain was like hey what's that you should have some more of that it's amazing like my, I had a physical response I yeah. Consciously had to think about it all day long. I was like, okay, I don't drink. Oh my god! Like it just totally blew me away. And um, actually, just one other thing because it's similar to this. Um, a friend had posted online today a suggestion um, for holiday parties, and I just want to make sure this gets mentioned tonight. Wherever you go, whatever you do, pour your own drink, because yeah. um, a sim. A, you, I've heard many, many stories where someone will accidentally get a drink um someone isn't paying attention they'll put alcohol in it or picking up someone else's cup that has alcohol in it in it and they take a sip and in some cases a person will say oh my god this is i have the wrong drink and they put it down or oh, oh my god they gave me a drink with alcohol and they put it down but then you also hear stories uh, we're hardwired to drink there's other people mm-hmm. that are like, oh, I, you know, I had a, I had a sip. Let me just finish it off, and the next thing they know, without even giving it a thought, they've drank the whole thing down. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something to be really careful about: is either watching very carefully someone pouring your drink, or just pouring it yourself to be safe. So. I think that's a really good tip, Amanda. And I often go so far as if I'm at a party, I do not set my drink down. I keep it with me in my hand as much as I can. And if it's one of those situations where um, everyone's having the same drink, but I've made myself a uh, virgin version of it, mocktail version. I hate the word virgin. (laughs) Virgin drink. (laughs) I'm a 47-year-old grandmother, so my virgin days are over, but... 
when uh, when I have a version of it that looks similar to everyone else's, I will grab like a little garnish, like a maraschino cherry or a cranberry or something, and drop it in my drink, so that I know that so that mine looks different than everyone else's. And uh, it's sort of similar to those little charms that we all used to put on our wine glasses to tell who's with who's, and then we'd get too drunk to remember who's with who's. <laughs> well, at least this way, <laughs> you're the only, was I the only one that did that? <laughs> um, <laughs> and who cared, because you drank it anyway. Um, but no, when, when it comes to sort of making sure you can identify your glass or make sure your glass is different than everyone else's, you're right, it's really important to be careful about that. Also, at this time of year, rum cakes, the rum cake comes out, or the fruit cake that can be soaked in alcohol. Um, chocolates, those stinking liqueur chocolates, you know, you have to watch for those. Um, they are very, uh, you know, they're just like little landmines that are around. So it's a time of year to really be mindful of that and um, and just to be thinking of it and to make sure that you're sort of, it's on your radar, right, this time of year. Um, wanted to talk about um, just some suggestions, I guess, as we're at sort of this stage, and, and Margaret used the word the blind side, you know, and I think that that's so important to be aware of that. So this is kind of a good time, I think, to review um, the early days of sobriety or of recovery and sort of remember, like, what were my reasons again for staying sober and, and um and that um, the idea of uh, what Josie said early on of, oh, I'm probably good now. You know what, I can probably, it's just a glass of champagne, you know. I'm probably okay because I've reset, you know, I've had, I have some sobriety, so maybe it's okay to just have a little bit. So this isn't the time to be mucking around with any of that. Um, Josie, did you have anything you wanted to add about this sort of this time of, you know, having some sobriety but going into your first holiday season? Well, yeah, going into the, you know, the first thing I'm going to say as as a tip for the newly sober is going to be the unpopular one, but it, it it's avoid alcohol situations as much as you can. The earlier you are in sobriety, the more important that is. I just, it's just the simplest thing you can do. And again, based on the stories I've told, honestly, life really does move on. People really don't think as much about it as you're thinking about it. Um, for me, some other things that I've done that that really helped me, and I still do actually, I started in early days and, and, and continue to help me, is I bring my own drink to the party. Um, like, for example, I am well known for my love of fountain soda, specifically Diet Pepsi, and there are, now obviously I'm going to low-rent places, I guess, that I can bring my fountain soda with me, but, you know, there's convenience stores 24 hours a day open, seven days a week. So wherever I'm going, I can stop by, you know, one of those places, grab a soda. I've got it with me. Having it with me means no one's asking me what I need to drink because it's in my hand already. And it's something I actually like drinking. Now, for people that are classier than me, I'm sure there's, you know, much fancier, nicer things that you can bring. And if you have it in your hands, right, I mean, it's just, it's simple and it sort of takes that guesswork out of it. Um, other than that, for me, the other thing I would do is I would try to think out in advance, you know, generally the parties I was going to, I knew the people, I knew the layout. So I would try to imagine in my mind where the trouble areas would be for me. Like if the, for me, I think parties tend to be the alcohols in the kitchen. And I also think where did the drinkers, or where are they, and where are the non-drinkers? Because believe it or not, you'll find as time moves on, not everybody drinks as much as you think they do. So I would tend to... 
um, gravitate towards the people that weren't drinking um, and stay out of the areas where the alcohol was served. And it just, you know, sort of took the took the pressure off. Um, I've got a million of them, but I, there's a bunch of us here. So I, I can keep going, but I certainly want to let other people share suggestions. <clears throat> Well, those are super helpful, really helpful. And I, in the interest of time, I actually kind of want to jump forward again and talk about um, the old, us old timers or people with lots of sobriety and how to avoid complacency um, this time of year because I think that is a danger too for for people that are you know well established in their recovery. And I'm just curious for both Amanda and Josie, how do you keep recovery on your calendar when there's so much competition for your time in the coming weeks? Uh, Josie, this is Josie. Okay, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll start. Um, you know what, Jean, it, it is the truth. And honestly, I'm guilty of it. The complacency has got it. I mean, there's, you know, as as you become more comfortable with sobriety, it, it, you, I guess, take bigger risks or you get more comfortable, whichever way you want to put it. And then you can take more on, right? And these are all good things, but then you just have to remember the balance. And this time of year, it gets hard. So for me, I have some, like, sort of non-negotiables set in for myself, things that I started early in sobriety, and I say, these are things you can do and you will do every day. So, like, for me, um, you know, I, I, I start my day prayerfully, and I thank um, my higher power for all the days I have sober and I ask for another one. Now, I know lots of people who don't pray, and they do very similar things in the form of meditation. So that's, I have to start every day like that. that I, can, I make that non-negotiable. Um, a big part of my... Um, two other components of my recovery are um, is a 12-step fellowship, and um, I, I, I blog. I do a recovery blog. So on the 12-step fellowship, I, I made a commitment that I I will be letting down a dozen or more people every single week. Like I have I have a weekly commitment to that. So again, like I would like to go, you know, two to three meetings a week. Well, I haven't been to two to three meetings a week in months at this point, but I have that one. So at least once a week I'm going. And then finally, the blogging world, which has been just a huge part of my recovery story. Again, I build in certain like for me every Monday I make it. If I do nothing else, every Monday I'm checking in, and I am writing a blog post. So just little things like that. <clears throat> that I just I make non-negotiable with myself. Awesome. How about you, Amanda? Uh, well, I guess that's that a, a, a lot of similar things. Um, I mean, I still um, I do say a little prayer every day. I um, and I, when I put my um, my coin in my pocket, I carry around my coin, and I always do. It's always if I don't have pockets, it's in my purse, and it's just it's a it's a routine. So I just keep my um, sobriety first and foremost in my life, um, and it's it's just it's a habit, it's a routine, it's something that I do, um, and I also have a lot of account- accountability in my life. Um, people know what is um, you know that I'm sober, and it's I'm I'm pretty open with that. So that that's very helpful. It would be a big deal, I think, if I. You know, if I were to pick up a drink at work, um, which is it's it's running all through the you know through the office, it's available. Um, you know, everyone knows it's it's um, so that would you know so I have a lot of accountability. It would be an issue. People know that I've made a commitment to being sober, um, and I also I attend um, two meetings a week uh, as well. It's just a, it's part of my life. And so as much as drinking used to be a part of my life, I guess, um, and it's not just the holidays, 
it is, you know, it's every day because they say, you know, the further you are away from your last drink, the closer you are to your next one. So it's, and that's just a saying that they mm-hmm. say, and it's, 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 um, so I just, I keep my sobriety as, you know, it's right in front of me every day. It's, it's just a, and it's, and I do keep things, you know, one day at a time. It's, um, I do, um, as Josie said, I, I do put myself in a different situations now. I'm not afraid to go, um, you know, I was at a casino last night where there's drinking everywhere and I actually just quit smoking again. There was smoking everywhere and, and, you know, but it's, it's something that I, um, I'm comfortable in that environment now, but I'm also very, I'm very aware. I don't go hang out at the bar. I don't go, I, you know, like Josie said too, yes, I thought that everyone drank the way that I did, but no, I was the only one who drank like I did. <laughs> and so I can, I can actually have conversations with people now. And I guess the other thing too is I make a habit of um, acknowledging or being aware, I guess, I don't necessarily acknowledge, but I'm I'm constantly aware of the things that I'm doing sober and how much better they are. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I just have, like, this great appreciation for sober life. So um, it's not just the holidays. That's an everyday thing that, you know, it's, it's uh, I don't know, four, almost four and a half years for me now, and, and it's just, it's just a part of my life um, that I, I just, I keep it forefront, but I think I think attending, you know, and doing the bubble hour. I mean, that's something I do every week. Even you know, it, it's still in my conscious realm of thought. Even though we, you know, we now have breaks. You know, we have weeks off because we have four co-hosts. You know, I have. Um, it's it's a part of my life. So recovery is just, you know, it's. Um, I enjoy my life to the fullest. I do. Everything that I limit myself in the beginning, I I don't I feel comfortable doing today. If and, and um, except for I would say if I'm ever having a bad day, and I'm I'm supposed to be attending a work event, I now have learned to respect myself and respect my own boundaries, and I'll say you know what today I just can't go to that. Mm-hmm. So well, and be good to yourself when you do that. This is Jean. You know what I hear both you and Josie saying as you talk about. What you do is that you have woven recovery through all aspects of your life. And so it doesn't really matter what time of year it is. It's the foundation that, you know, everything in your life is really kind of woven through with that. And, um, you know, I think all of us, Margaret, myself, you know, I think we all are sort of in process of, you know, finding all the ways that we can sort of work those threads through all aspects of our life. So that's awesome. We are really running short on time. And Amanda, you had uh, 12 tips for the holidays that you, for sober holidays that you were going to share with us. Do you have those? Yes, yes. I will just uh, read through these really quickly. Um, And this is suggestions from a recovery program. So some of them might be geared that way a little bit, but I think they're um, valid whether or not you attend recovery meetings or not. So um, attend meetings. And that can also be, um, you know, just connecting with people that, um, as, you know, actually you've all said, you know, talking to people who are in recovery. So attending meetings, many areas have special holiday schedules, um, and so you can uh, certainly find meetings during the holidays. Um, Have phone lists. Keeping in contact with supportive people is vital to your recovery. You know, as Margaret said, there's, you know, not everyone's going to be supportive of your recovery, so it's important that you 
take time to speak to people who are. Um, avoid HALT, which is, stands for Hungry, Angry, Lonely, Tired. Avoid becoming hu- too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Taking care of yourself should be a top priority. Remove expectations. This time of year can bring a lot of expectations of others and of ourselves. Take it easy on everyone, including yourself. Take each situation for what it is and simply enjoy the season. Um, Attend sober events. Many areas sponsor sober events during the holidays and um, you know, beyond just the meetings, I know I can. Uh, we have a New Year's Eve dance every year that I do my best to go to, and it was like my first really thing in sobriety. So, um, sober events are awesome. Start a new tradition. Host your own so- sober holiday party. Um, that can, you know, something you can teach people that they can have fun without drinking too. Volunteer. Uh, there's many opportunities to volunteer in your community, and um, if you've never volunteered before, being of service to someone really gives you just an amazing feeling. And you, um, so not only would you be helping yourself, you'd get to help someone else. Write a daily gratitude list. The quickest way to add the holiday blues is to count your blessings each day. Um, stay away from slippery places. There is absolutely no reason to ever check out your former favorite establishments, and you can also, as we talked about a lot on the show, you can also, um, you know, you don't have to go to every event that you're invited to. Plan ahead. Plan to spend the majority of your holiday with friends and family that are supportive of your recovery. And have plan B. If you must attend an event where alcohol is served, have an escape route or an alternative place to go and start to feel uncomfortable around alcohol. And the last one is live one day at a time and enjoy your sobriety. Never mind what happened. Don't worry about what could happen. Live today and celebrate your sobriety. Great. That's awesome. I want to add one thing to that as well. Um, I just want to acknowledge that a lot of people over the holidays might feel really isolated this time of year if they either don't celebrate the religious holidays or celebrate them differently or if their beliefs are offended by the trappings of decorations and commercialism. And so this can be a time of year where some people just completely feel left out of everything that's going on around them, and that can even lead them to isolate and feel lonely and and just worn out and and can be a threat to their recovery too. So I want to make sure that we acknowledge that and that as people in recovery who – in recovery we all look out for each other, and so I think that's one more aspect for us to be mindful of is we're um, looking out for our friends in recovery too. So with just a few minutes left in the show, I want to go around and ask for everyone's sort of final thoughts or wrap-up thoughts as we as we bring our discussion to a close. Margaret, do you mind going first? No, um, I mean, uh, as everyone's talking, I'm thinking how well Josie and um, Amanda know themselves and know exactly uh, they've got that experience behind them. And I think that when you uh, are on this journey, when you've spent so many years numbing out and avoiding, when you come out of that haze, you know yourself better than anyone, and you yourself can prepare yourself and predict what your challenges are going to be with the help of other people. So um, I think that's one of the gifts of sobriety is just this journey of self-discovery. Oh, that's great. Thank you That's so much. Awesome, Margaret. This is this is Josie. You know, one other thing that has been a feel safe for me um is when all else fails and you're you're just you feel like you can't get out and you're miserable in a drinking occasion, sometimes I'll take the perspective of what if I'm modeling 
a successful sober person? What if someone's watching me that's trying sobriety and they want to see how it's done? Do I want to show up as a miserable, anxious wreck, or do I want to be a calm, confident person? And when I do that, I, I start like I turn the focus outwards instead of. You know, poor me, poor me. I'm, I'm, I'm looking out and trying to help someone else, and it, it never fails to turn it around. So, that's my final thought. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So it's a way of sort of turning your conduct into service, right, mm-hmm. for some unknown potential person. <laughs> exactly. That's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you both, Amanda. Closing thoughts from you, my dear. Yeah, I mean, I guess the the um, the biggest thing I think is um, be kind to yourself. I know it feels like a selfish act, um, but you really need to take care of yourself through the holidays and, you know, just respect yourself, which we I know it was just such a challenge for me to learn how to do that and um, just just do what you need to do to keep yourself sober. You know, don't drink no matter what. The holidays are just holidays. They're really just another day. And, um, you know, stepping back, I actually had a very, very low-key Thanksgiving. It just worked out that way for me this year, and it was so nice. Like, so it's okay to just, you know, sit back, you know, relax, you know, give yourself a break. I guess is um and just be really cautious if, especially if you're in early sobriety don't don't put yourself in tough situations um it will you know there's there'll be Thanksgiving next year there'll be Christmas next year you know it's they say it's a um threefold disease Thanksgiving Christmas and New Year's and there's um you know missing one year of holidays or you know toning them down a little bit or whatever you need to do to take care of yourself you'll you know you'll be happy happier for it in the long run. You guys are so smart. <laughs> <laughs> really, this has been a really great discussion. Um I'm really very very grateful to have spoken to each of you tonight and to hear your thoughts and experiences and and your wisdom and I know that our listeners will really um, get a lot out of this and I hope listeners if you have any feedback um, please feel free to reach us through our website uh, you can email us at thebubblehour at gmail.com and um, share any feedback you have on the show or any thoughts and questions and I just am so grateful to the three of you for all of the wisdom that you shared tonight thank you so much thank you Jean oh, thank, thank you Jean Thank you, and I'm going to do our closing blurb here. So we would like to direct our listeners to our parent organization, that's shiningstrong.org, and there you will find links to all of our resources, including the Bubble Hour and Crying Out Now, which is a fantastic website of storytelling for people in recovery, and other initiatives about recovery advocacy. And you will also find a link to my blog, which is Unpinkled, and on my blog you'll find a link to Josie's blog, and we all just connect around here. It's fantastic. Um, If you'd like to go directly to the Bubble Hour's website, that's thebubblehour.com, and there you can listen to our shows directly, follow the link to subscribe to our podcasts, and we are also on Facebook, so please be sure to visit us and like our page, and we thank you all for listening to the Bubble Hour. I hope you have a great evening. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. night. Bye-bye. Thank you, Jean. Good night. Good night.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.